thank you so much. What do you do when you don't like the circumstances of your life and it seems as if those circumstances aren't going to change anytime soon? There are many answers to that question, but one stands out as being of supreme importance. When you deal with bad circumstances, you don't seem likely, that don't seem likely to change anytime soon, or if ever, there are many things that you might do, but there is one thing that you absolutely must do. You must go back and find out where God is in the midst of your frustration. Now, let me just start today by saying that good theology can save us when nothing else will. Now, this principle is becoming more and more important to me as I continue on through my life. Good theology can save your life. Now, we all know that good theology can save your soul. But in the times of trouble, when you find that the clouds are dark and you find that uh, it, it seems like there's no path forward and it doesn't seem like God is really around, when all of, the, all of the things of life seem to come crashing in upon your life, it is good to remember that good theology can save your life. You see, what you know can save you when life tumbles in. So what things are we talking about? Well, let me just give you a short list. As, as, uh, as believers, we know that God is good. We know God is faithful. God knows what is best for my life. God is quick to forgive. He will never leave me. His mercies endure forever. He doesn't make any mistakes. God has a purpose for all things. He is working out his plan for me. God still loves me. The Holy Spirit still indwells me. Jesus is still alive today. And Jesus is returning someday soon. So when we have those, those and many other theological points down in our mind and we go through the dark days and the trials of our life and those begin to flood back into our minds we find strength to go through those difficult days so with that I want you to turn in your Bibles if you have them to Jeremiah chapter 29 Jeremiah chapter 29 And if you know anything about Jeremiah 29 at all, you probably know it because of one particular verse. It is a verse that has given hope and comfort to many people. It has been sung and memorized, quoted, repeated in prayer. It often is found cross-stitched and hung in people's kitchens so that you won't forget what it says. And what I'm referring to is not our text this morning, but it's Jeremiah 29 in verse 11. 
where it says, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, most of us know that particular verse, but our lesson today is not about that promise, as wonderful as it is, but I mention it because most people only know that verse, and they know very little about the background of Jeremiah chapter 29. But when you know something about this particular chapter, do you discover some profound insights into how God deals with his children, especially when they find themselves in difficult circumstances that don't seem very likely to change anytime soon? And so since that reality applies to all of us some of the times and some of us all of the time, then we should take a closer look at what God is saying. Now, in order to do that, I think that we really need a background even further into, into what was going on in the lives of the children of Israel. The year was 597 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar was, has held, held the army of, or led the army of Babylon to the gates of Jerusalem and held the people kind of kind of in, in captured there. There the Babylonians made quick work of the armies of Judah, capturing the city, capturing the wicked king Jehoiakim, who was bound in bronze shackles and taken to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also at that time looted the temple that was built by Solomon and taking from the temple the articles of silver and of gold. Jehoiakim was replaced by Jehoiachin, who remained only three months. And then Nebuchadnezzar brought him to Babylon, along with more of the articles from the temple. Approximately 10,000 people were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in this deportation. 2 Kings chapter 24 tells us that he took the artisans and the craftsmen and the, the royal officials and all of the leading men of the land and only left the poorest people behind. Meanwhile, a man by the name of Zedekiah became the king in Jerusalem. He was really just kind of a puppet king put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned 11 more years until Nebuchadnezzar decided that he was going to deal with the Jewish people once and for all. And in 588 B.C., he set up a siege against Jerusalem that lasted two years while a famine spread throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. It finally fell in 586 B.C. This time, he totally destroyed everything. He tore down the city walls. He burned the temple. He, he burned every other important building in Jerusalem. He left the city in absolute ruins. And he took whatever he wanted and he destroyed everything else. He captured Zedekiah, killed his sons before his eyes, and then he poked out Zedekiah's eyes and marched him in bronze shackles to Babylon. He took another large group of captives to Babylon at that time as well. 
The Babylonians were not very nice. <laughs> they were the most powerful nation on earth, and their army was ruthless. In fact, after conquering a city, they would sometimes put a pile of skulls in the city plaza as a warning to anyone that they were not to rebel against the Babylonians. There were actually three deportations from Jerusalem to Babylon. The, the first one happened in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel and his, his friends were dep de deported uh, from Jerusalem to, to Babylon. The second one happened in 587 B.C. That's the background for Jeremiah chapter 29. And the third and final one happened in 586 B.C. when the city was turned into a wasteland. So we have to ask the question, what happens... When God says, enough. When we are living in rebellion against God, when we are, when we are not really worshiping God the way we should, when we, when we turn our backs on God, when we follow other gods or other pursuits, other things that seem more important in our life, when God finally said, that's enough, what happens? Well, there's one other part in all of this that we need to consider, and that is why did all of this happen? And we can say it simply, it happened because the people of Judah turned away from the Lord. The Jews turned away from God. They ignored God's word. They forgot his promises. They worshiped idols. They took lightly their holy calling. They willingly followed after evil. They took advantage of the poor and the weak. They trafficked in violence. And above all of that, they acted as if God wasn't paying any attention to them. They acted like they could live this way and, and God wasn't watching. God didn't really care. And that was their ultimate mistake. For generations, the people had turned away from the Lord. And to make matters worse, they learned nothing from the sad experience of the northern ten tribes that we know are called Israel when they were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And though it could be argued that the northern tribes went further into idolatry than, than, than Judah did down in Jerusalem, Judah's sin was greater because the people saw what happened to Israel and they forgot God anyways. They turned their back on God anyways. And God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet whom they ignored and they sometimes killed. And God gave them good kings, and when they had good kings, they followed the Lord. But then all of a sudden, that good king was gone, and a bad king would come, and they would go back to their evil ways again. And finally, the time came in the life of the Israelites that God said, Enough! I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. 
And that is when he raised up Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against his own people. That pagan king unwittingly served God's purposes by attacking Jerusalem and destroying the temple and ransacking the city and taking thousands of Jews captive. And all of that lies behind Jeremiah chapter 29, a pivotal chapter in our quest to understand how God deals with his people. We can summarize the, the background in this way. God called his people to holiness. They ignored God's call and they went their own way. God warned them over and over again that judgment was going to come. He sent prophet after prophet, but the people paid no heed. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar who attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it and a great many Jews ended up in Babylon in captivity for 70 years. It is now 597 BC. A large group of the Jews are in Babylon. It is impossible for us to fully understand how they felt about what had happened to them. But the thing that we want to try to understand is that they were in Babylon. Babylon. To them, even though they had walked away from God and they weren't serving God the way they should have and, and they had other idols and, and, and all of that, to them, Babylon, that was the center of all evil. They hated everything that the Babylonians stood for. They hated them for their cruelty. They hated them for their violence. They hated them for their idolatry. They hated them for attacking the city of God. And 11 years later, they would hate them even more for destroying the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. To the Jews, you understand, that is where you met with God. That is where you went and you did your sacrifices and God would come down and that was destroyed. Psalm 137 and verses 1 to 3 add that they were so miserable in Babylon that they hung their harps on the willow trees and they refused to sing the songs of Zion Psalm 137, verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees. For our captives there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us the songs of Zion. The captivity of the Jews raised enormous theological questions for us. And that one of those questions is, where is God in all of this? How could he let the bad guys take the good guys captive? How could he allow his temple, the temple in Jerusalem, his earthly dwelling place, how could God allow that to be destroyed? 
And most of all, how could he use the Babylonians to punish the Jews when the Babylonians were 10 times worse, probably 100 times worse than the Jews? There's a book in the Old Testament, a little book, if you haven't read it, that is devoted entirely to those questions. It's called Habakkuk. What do you do when God doesn't seem to come through for you? Or when he doesn't live up to your expectations? What do you do? Well, the answer to all of this is simple. The real problem is not God not living up to our expectations. It's us not living up to his expectations. When that happens, judgment's not far off. And and let me just say this also right here, that, that I think that we have all learned this the hard way. The worst wounds that we experience in life are self-inflicted wounds. Rarely will anyone hurt us as bad as we hurt ourselves. There is no pain like the pain of making a stupid mistake, saying something that we never should have said, hurting someone that we love the most, breaking their trust, violating our conscience, repeatedly doing wrong things, saying I'm sorry just to go ahead and do it all over again, promising to do better, and we end up doing worse, failing to live up to our own standards, and disappointing those who depend on us. That's the ragged edge of pain that keeps us awake at night, that make us toss and turn. That's the gulf stream of of guilt that overwhelms us with sorrow and, and makes us feel like we have really blown it in our lives. I know of no other pain greater than the pain of looking at the ruins of what might have been and knowing that you are responsible for the wreckage. And that's precisely how the Jews felt in Babylon. They felt rejected, they felt humiliated, they felt trapped, they felt judged, they felt condemned, they felt forgotten. They'd become a laughingstock among the nations just as the prophet had predicted. And so it is against this amazing backdrop that we come at last to Jeremiah chapter 29. The only other thing that you need to know is that this is a letter, a letter that Jeremiah is writing. And this chapter contains a letter that that was written by Jeremiah from Jerusalem, where he is at, to encourage the dejected exiles in Babylon. His letter turns out to be a personal message from God to his people. And what a message it is. So with that in mind, I I want you to take a look at Jeremiah chapter 29. And in verse 1, it says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem 
to the remaining exiles, elders, the priests, the prophets, and all of the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jacona, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah, Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elisha, the son of Saphan, and Gamariah, son of Helkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The letter stated, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all of the exiles. I deported you from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then we look at verse 5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, find wives for yourself, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters to men to marry so that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to, pray the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Seventy years. That's how long they were going to be there. I want to I point out one other thing, and that we see very clearly here, and that is that God takes responsibility for sending them to Babylon. And that's huge. You can't overstate the importance. Everything God is going to say depends on grasping that one central truth. Why were they judged? Because of their sins. Who captured them and took them to Babylon? The Nebuchadnezzar did. Who sent them to Babylon? God did. The Babylons thought that they were doing it all by themselves. I mean, after all, as pagans, they, they weren't consciously trying to do God's work for him. And yet in Jeremiah chapter 25, God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Look back at chapter 25 in verses 7, 7 down through verse 9. In verse 7 of chapter 25, he says, But you have not obeyed me. This is the Lord's declaration. With the results that you have angered me by the works of your hands and brought disaster on yourself, therefore this is what the Lord of armies said, because you have not obeyed my words, I am going to send for all of the families of the north. This is the Lord's declaration. And, and, uh, and send for my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land, against its residents, and against all these surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them example of horror and scorn and ruin forever. Wow. That's, that's mind-blowing. Because at that moment... Nebuchadnezzar did not even believe in the God of the Bible. 
He worshiped other gods. But God, God says, it doesn't matter. He is my servant for what I am going to do to Israel. And look again at chapter 29 and verse 4. We see there in verse 4 that um, it says, And this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. I deported whom I have sent into exile. The NFV says, to all those I carried to exile. The King James says, whom I have caused to be carried away. There's a warning and a a ray of hope in these words. And that is, God will not be mocked. If you sin, you will be punished. And God will take personal responsibility to do it. He may even use your enemies as his instruments to bring you down, to bring you to the point where you repent of your sins and you get right with God. That's the warning. But the promise is that God does not forget his children, even when they sin. And that's the good news. The Jews have been taught from from birth that God dwells in Jerusalem, that he dwells in in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to find God, they said, then go to the temple. You can worship him there. And now they were hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. They were in a pagan land. They were separated from their past, knowing most of them would never again return to Jerusalem. Even if they did, the temple wouldn't even be there anymore. And so how are we ever going to worship God? And into that despair, God speaks a word of hope. I was with you in Jerusalem. I sent you to exile, and I'm with you now. God says to his hurting children, I have not left you, not for a moment. I said I would punish you, and I did. But I have not forsaken my own people, and I never will. Strange as it may seem, the Jews ultimately were in Babylon because that's where they needed to be. It doesn't make sense sometimes, does it? Their rebellion was so deep that they needed to be removed from from Judah in order for that sin to be broken. And the major sin in the lives of the Jews at that time was idolatry. And Babylon was the greatest area of idolatry that was around. And God took them out of their idolatry in Jerusalem and placed them there in Babylon where it was everywhere. And the interesting thing is, is after 70 years, the Jews didn't have a problem wholesale for idolatry again. You see, only radical surgery can remove the cancer of idolatry. You you might say that their exile in Babylon, as terrible as it seems, was really a severe mercy from God. There was no other way to get their attention. And in Jeremiah chapter 24, in verses 6 and 7, 
God offers a wonderful promise to his dejected people. In chapter 24, in verses 6 and 7, God says, I will keep my eye on them for their good and will return them to this land. I will build them up and not demolish them. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God because they will return to me with all their hearts. It's as if God is saying, you think I hate you, but I don't. I have a wonderful plan for you. And that wonderful plan begins in Babylon. It didn't seem so wonderful at the moment, but it was. It is better to be in the will of God in Babylon than to be out of the will of God in Jerusalem. So at last we return to the question that I asked you at the very beginning. What do you do when you don't like the circumstances of your life? And it seems as if those circumstances aren't going to change anytime soon. And the answer is that, that God doesn't look at your circumstances the same way that you and I do. You don't like where you are in life right now? Maybe you wish that you were somewhere else, doing something else. Maybe you may be in a bad place, in part because of your own foolish choices in life. I don't know what's happening in your life right now, but, but you know where you are, and you know the struggles you have. And God says that you are where you are, right now because that's where I put you and that's huge when we look at maybe it's darkness we're going through maybe it's judgment maybe it's financial issues whatever it is it's amazing when we think that I am in this situation because this is where God put me now maybe it's for the choices I made the things that I've done but God put me here. And that's the whole point of this story in Jeremiah chapter 29. You are where you are because of God. You are where you are right now because God wants you there. If he wanted you somewhere else, guess what? You'd be somewhere else. And even if it is a painful place where you are right now, it is better to be there and to know God is with you than to live in luxury someplace else without the Lord. I told you earlier that, it's, that good theology can save you. If you are in ba Babylon right now, what you desperately need is some good theology. You need a reason to have hope and a future. God is faithful. We are not always faithful to him. But God is always faithful to us. Be encouraged, child of God. If you feel trapped, you're not really trapped. God wants you to discover that you can worship God even in Babylon. 
right where you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the opportunity that we had today to, to study it. And as we look at how you dealt with the children of Israel, it's painfully awakening to us that you deal with us in much the same way. And we might not be carried away by a king like Nebuchadnezzar and taken to another land, but sometimes the enemy of our soul will attack us. And sometimes you allow judgments to come upon us. And you place us in the positions that we are in, whether financially or physically or just geographically or whatever it is, for a reason to get our attention and to draw our hearts back to you. And that's what you long for, is for us to seek you with our whole heart and know that we will find you because you love us. You have a plan for our life and you will bring glory to yourself through our circumstances. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to search our hearts and see if there are areas right now that we need to deal with before you. And that we would have those things right before we leave this building today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.